Bible, turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, this afternoon, starting in verse 35. Matthew 27, 35. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this afternoon, Lord, to take a break from our day to remember one of the most important days of all of human history. And we... Uh, give you the glory and the honor and the praise for allowing us to be here this afternoon. We pray you'd bless our time together, anoint it. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to our Good Friday services. We remember the, the day, the time, the place, the way in which our Lord Jesus Christ uh, gave himself for us. You know, Good Friday has different meanings for different people. For many, you know, Friday they look like, like it is, oh, it's just the end of the work week, you know, the weekend begins, the, the happy hour group, they go out and they're ready to have their happy hour, you know, they go to TGIFs, you know, thank, thank God it's Friday, you know, they head there and, and party. And I'm sure today is not going to be any different for, for many in the world today, you know, they go out breaking the very commandments of God instead of focusing in on what Christ has done for us. Good Friday is also known as as Holy Friday or Great Friday or, or Black Friday, which is interesting that the day after Thanksgiving they call it Black Friday as well, where you get all the good deals. Let me tell you that the blackest, the darkest Friday of all was in Jerusalem, Israel, some 2,000 years ago. It was a day that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sin of all humanity. We call it Good Friday because that's really when you can get the best deal ever, you know, given you because uh, of that day. If you put your faith and trust in, in the one who died there for us, Jesus Christ, you can have all your sins washed away and be given the gift of eternal life. So that really is the best Black Friday deal I've ever heard of. Now, before we can fully understand what that means, we need to know a little bit about what happened on Good Friday back in Jerusalem so many years ago. I think we all know the story. We've read it many times. Judas Iscariot. Uh, betrayed his Lord for 30 people, 30 pieces of silver. The Bible tells us that Satan entered his heart. But in reality, other forces were at play on that day. Forces more powerful than the religious rulers, more powerful than the Roman government, more powerful than Judas Iscariot or anyone else. For all practical purposes, God himself was bringing about the events of the crucifixion. And I think it's something that sort of boggles our mind that, that the forces of Satan was also moving in that same objective. In other words, in a rare moment in history, the forces of God and of Satan were going in the same direction, but with different objectives. Satan, blinded by his desire to destroy Christ, thought by killing him, he could eliminate him as a threat, not realizing that he's playing right into the hand of God. Because long before there was a Jerusalem, Long before there was Israel or a garden called Eden or for that matter, a planet called Earth, a decision was made in eternity that Jesus Christ would come to this earth and die for our sins. Because God knew that man would eat of the forbidden fruit. He knew that we would blow it. He knew that we would sin. 
We're told in 1 Peter 1, 18-20, speaking of our redemption, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And here's the key verse. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In other words, the decision was already made that Christ would be slain before the foundation of the world. And we know that Jesus, in fact, told his disciples how he was going to suffer, how he was going to be betrayed, how he was going to be crucified, and how he would rise again on the third day. He, all, all ahead of time. Now we know when, when Jesus was delivered before Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor, he wasn't very happy. He didn't really want to deal with something as, as controversial as the crucifixion of Jesus. So in his mind, he thought, well, I'll just scourge him, you know, hoping that would appease a bloodthirsty crowd. But, and, and I think that many of us really don't realize how barbaric and painful that scourging was. Back in those days, the Romans would use something called the cat of nine tails, which was a whip with numerous pieces of, of, of lead and, and, and metal, you know, and, and glass uh, embedded in it. And every time those strands would come down on the victim's back, it would literally rip, rip open the skin, rip open into the muscle, even to the skeletal tissue as well. Many people would not even survive the scourging. So Pilate had him scourged. Then he brought him before the crowd and said, Behold the man, hoping that he'd get some you know, uh, kind of sympathy from the crowd for him. But instead of finding that sympathy... The bloodthirsty crowd chanted in unison, Crucify him, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And so he was sent to the cross. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, starting in verse 35 down to 50. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, The man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded, yielded up his spirit. Death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest, disgraceful ways to be executed. It was usually reserved for slaves or foreign revolutionaries or criminals of the worst kind. The Romans used it quite often. In fact, history tells us that the Romans crucified some 30,000 people. 
Now again, we know Jesus was already been whipped using the cat of nine tails. They took him with his shredded back open. They laid him on this cross. You have to understand that, that the feet of the one being crucified would be crossed over and a spike would be driven through both of them and, and, and then also through the hands. Because actually when a person would die upon a cross, it was not because of the blow of the spikes themselves. It was usually death by suffocation because the crucified person was un, unable to breathe. And the only way they could get air within their lungs was to push in that little step at the foot of the cross up to get the air and then let down to let it go out. So imagine the pain. Imagine the anguish as Jesus pressed up upon his feet uh, that had a spike driven through them, pulling his body up with his hands uh, that were also driven in by the spikes just, just to breathe, just to get one breath. At this time, there would also be the congestion of the blood in the head and the lungs and in the heart. And contrary to the pictures of victims of crucifixion, uh, they were stripped naked upon that cross, to bring total humiliation. So add to that the swelling of virtually every vein in the body, all combined together, making crucifixion the cruelest of all deaths. And, and Jesus pulls them up upon that cross, in that pain, in that unimaginable state, and he utters the first of seven statements there from the cross at Calvary. And you know what his first statement was? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's interesting that the very first thought was praying for his enemies. Now later he would say, I thirst. And if his first statement was, I thirst, I would have understood that. But to hear him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His first thoughts were certainly not for himself. Nor were they even for his mother, who was standing at the foot of the cross with one of his own disciples. A little bit later, he would say, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother, referring to John, John, uh, you know, the beloved who was to take care of his mother, now that the Lord was going to be dying and ascended into heaven. No, his very first thoughts were for, were for the very individuals who had driven those spikes into his hands and into his feet. And this was such a dramatic statement that it caused the immediate conversion of one of the thieves there next to him on the cross. Now here in Matthew's Gospel, we don't read about it here. Uh, we just read that both thieves enjoined in the course of mockery against the crucified Lord, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. That alone amazes me how these guys, these other guys are on the cross. They're, they're being crucified as well. And they had the presence of mind to say something like that to Jesus. But here they were so filled with rage and anger, they were repeating what the people at the foot of the cross were saying. But then suddenly when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of those thieves said, man, this ain't right. And instantaneously came to his senses on the spot, believed and turned to Jesus Christ. And the Lord said, and he said to the Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, after that time, we read that there was a mysterious darkness that fell on the earth that lasted for three hours from 12 noon until three o'clock. Could you imagine if all of a sudden everything just went dark right now? I mean, like it was pitch black midnight outside. Everything was just just turned black. That'd be pretty scary. I think you'd be thinking hey, something is going on here. Something was up. I believe it was dark when Jesus died so that those who trusted him would know that they would no longer have to live under that darkness of bondage and sin and guilt. Well, during those three hours of silence, it was suddenly broken by the cry of our Lord in verse 46, 
who said, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the moment that I believe led to God's most painful moment as the darkness is pierced by the voice of Christ when he gives that fourth statement of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why would Jesus say such a thing? Well, for starters, it's fulfillment of Psalm 22. The very first verse in Psalm 22 says exactly that. It also says they pierced my hands and my feet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think these words surprise us. They disarm us and they make us wonder what he meant by that. It's hard for us as human beings to even fathom what's going on here, what's taking place here. See, we're, we're on holy ground when we look at this subject because it's believed at that moment in time was when Jesus was bearing all the sins of the entire world. Now, we know it had to happen at some point during the crucifixion. This seems to be the most precise moment that it happened. And by the way, these were not delusions of a man in pain. His faith was not failing him. These were uh, the words of a man who literally was forsaken by God for a time. He was merely stating the truth of the situation. Now, let me give you a side note. That's not the way God normally deals with his own when they face life's hardest moments. You know, when a Christian goes through trials and we go through difficult times, you know, God actually reveals himself to us in special ways to get us through those times of tragedies and difficulties and hardship. But in this situ- situation, Jesus said this because it was an accurate assessment of what actually was transpiring. A great gulf was separating him from the holiness of God. He, he had no sin of his own, but the Bible says the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. See, I don't think any of us can really even begin to fathom what was going on at this time. I mean, all of our worst fears of the horrors of hell and more were realized by him as he received the due penalty for all of our wrongdoings. See, to be forsaken by God, even for a short time, to Jesus would be a fate worse, worse than death. Thus, God's most painful moment. Why? Well, Jesus was God. He never had a single thought out of harmony with the Father, much less ever committed a sin. This was a man who was always in complete, perfect harmony with his father at all times. And now he's not only having to face the sin of one person or two people or five people, but the sins of all the people alive in his generation and the sins of all of us that have gone on after that time. That's a lot of sin, a whole lot of sin to bear. And he was bearing it all. And what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's also worth noting that Jesus at this point did not address God as Father. He didn't say, My Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God. Again, the reason being is because the Son had taken upon Himself the sin of the world, so the Father had to turn His back on His Son. We're told in Habakkuk 1.13, speaking of God, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. So the punishment for our peace was upon Him. And I believe that this was the moment that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I believe this, as Isaiah 53 was uh, fulfilled as well, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him smitten by God, stricken and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
Peter reminds us that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Why did this happen? Why did our Lord have to go through something as awful as this? Let me give you four reasons, and then we'll enter into time of communion. Number one, he went through all of this to show his love for us. To show his love for us. Man, if you're ever tempted to doubt God's love for you, just take a look at the cross at Calvary and remember, Jesus did that for you. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. Then, of course, Paul said he loved me and gave himself for me. See, Jesus was forsaken by God, so I don't have to be. He was forsaken of God for time that I might enjoy his presence forever. Jesus was forsaken so that I might be forgiven. Jesus entered the darkness that I might walk in the light. Number two, the reason Jesus went through this was to absorb the wrath of God. To absorb the wrath of God. See, if God were not just, there would be no demand for His Son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for His Son to suffer and die in the first place. But because He is both just and loving, He met the, 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 the demands of justice as His Son went to bear the brunt of all sin. And God's Word says, the soul that sins shall surely die. Someone had to pay the price. Jesus was the only one qualified. You've heard this before. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. Number three, Jesus went through this in order to cancel the legal demands against us. You know, I think the conventional wisdom, really, of our culture today and people today uh, is that God grades on a curve. In other words, if I live a good life and I try to be good, you know, a good person, now I'm going to go to heaven. But if I live a bad life, then maybe I won't get to heaven. Listen, that's simply not true. Because the bottom line is we've all broken God's commandments. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no salvation by balancing the records. The only way of salvation is by canceling the records. Because there are some serious charges against you and, and I because of our sin. And the wages of that sin, the penalty of that sin, is death. But that brings us to the last reason Jesus suffered and died for us. To provide, number four, to provide forgiveness and justification. This means that no matter what you've done, if you've turned from that sin and acknowledged it and asked God to forgive you, you've been forgiven. You don't need to carry that burden. You don't need to carry that guilt any longer. Uh, the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, God has put that sin from you. Not only that, but you've been justified. Justified. Let me illustrate what that means. Let's say that you somehow got a little carried away with your credit card and you ran up your debt of $10 million. Okay, it's an illustration. No one's actually going to give you a $10 million credit limit, okay? But you ran up a debt of $10 million. Obviously, you couldn't pay, you know, that debt. You were arrested. You were going to go to prison. Well, your story ran in the newspaper. Some very wealthy man decided he's going to pay your debt. So he came and he got the money out and he took care of all your responsibility, all your debt, and you're now debt free. You owed $10 million, Now you owe absolutely nothing. So you wanted to meet this person. Man, you wanted to thank him. And so you sat down with him at the restaurant and said, Man, I just want to thank you for taking care of me and, and taking care of that debt. It's just so amazing that you would do something like that for me. The man says, well, I was happy to do that for you. I understand how difficult your situation was. And, and by the way, on your way home tonight, why don't you go ahead and stop by the ATM and check your balance in the account? 
So I know what my balance is. It's zilch. It's zero. It's not. It is, it's nothing. Well, you might want to check that again. So you head on home and, and you stop by your ATM and, and you slide your card and you punch in your PIN number and you hit the button that says check balance. And you're amazed to see a balance of $20 million in your account. That's justification. Just as if you've never had debt to begin with, just as if you've never sinned, forgiveness is having the debt that you owed canceled. Justification is having something put into your account in its place. Christ not only forgave you of your sin completely, He puts His righteousness into your account. That's what He did for us on the cross at Calvary. And why did He do that? Again, because He loved us. Because of His love for us. Hebrews 12 gives us an insight as to what kept Jesus going as he faced the horrors of the cross. It says this, Seeing that we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy that was set before him? think of Jesus telling the story of the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one went astray and he went until he found it. He brought it back rejoicing. The Bible says there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that comes to repentance. See, you were the joy. I, I was the joy that was set before him. You were the reason. I was the reason he went to the cross at Calvary. So now we have open access to the throne of God 24-7 no matter what you're going through. You have an ear that's open and listening to your cry. So as we come to the communion table, we have a lot to be thankful for today, don't we? May I have the worship team come up right now, and, 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 and as they do, I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul, what he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-29. He writes this, If I receive from the Lord that which they also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night on which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Communion is a reminder to us that no matter how long we have known the Lord, or, or, or how much we have matured spiritually, or how many good works we have done since our con- conversion, it still comes back to Calvary. It still comes back to the cross. The Lord said, I want to establish something that will bring you back time after time to the cross just so you don't forget what this is all about. It's not about anything you've done. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. God is saying, it's all about the cross. He's saying, the only reason you have access into my presence right now is because the blood of my son was shed for you and he suffered a sinner's death in your place. Remember that. Don't lose sight of that. Don't forget that. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. You know, there are times that, that uh, you know, you really can't remember a, a person. You know, sometimes have people come up to me and say, well, uh, you know, hey, do you remember me? I haven't got a clue who they are. I have no idea, you know. You know, you got to, in order to, you know, 
remember someone, you got to know who they are. Now, it's pers- you know, possible I, I've met them once in my lifetime. You know, I don't know. It's possible I, I'm senile and I, you know, I just don't remember them at all. But, but uh, whatever the case, I don't remember them. My point is, if you can't remember Jesus, if you've never known him. And that brings us to the statement of Paul. Don't do this in, a, in an unworthy manner. See, communion is a family celebration. It's for believers. It's for Christians. Should we see these elements? And, and I believe we're all believers here this afternoon. But if you're not sure your life is right with God, maybe you've drifted away a little bit from the Lord and you need to recommit yourself to the Lord this afternoon, do it as we receive communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in your word it is recorded for us what your son went through upon that cross. Lord, as you had to turn your back upon him because upon him was every sin that I committed, that we committed or will commit. You cannot look at sin and so you turned your face from your son because you love us so much. Lord, and we are now able to come into your presence and find forgiveness and hope and joy all because of what took place 2,000 years ago. Lord, as we come to the communion table, we want to rededicate our lives to you. We want to remember, Lord, what you did for us. We want to, Lord, open our hearts to you, Lord. Lord, if there's anything that we need to confess, that we need to bring to the cross, help us to do so this afternoon. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the cross and what this represents. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.